Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Living with XXY podcast series. I'm your host, Ryan Briganti. So today we have a mother from Canada, Kristen. How's it going? Hi, Ryan. How are you? Doing well. So um, your son has Kleinfelder syndrome, and um, I'm really excited to just talk to you about your guys' story and kind of everything that you guys have been experiencing with your son. And so can you kind of get us started on kind of how you guys found out your son? How, who, how old is your son now? What's his name? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my son, Cassiel, is 15 years old. And we're actually, I sort of still think of it as a new diagnosis. But, it, uh, I mean, it was in, I believe, May of 2021 that he received the Kleinfelter's diagnosis. So um, obviously, you know, he, he made it to age 14 uh, without us um, having that diagnosis. And it was a big challenge because, you know, there are a lot of um, things that we would now recognize as being part of uh, Kleinfelter syndrome that we didn't have an explanation for previously. Uh, so getting that diagnosis was huge for us because now we know, you know, what we can explain sort of everything that's been going on with him and all of the challenges that he's had over his whole life. So it was really exciting to finally know exactly what was going on. So how did you, can you like kind of work us through, how did you guys find out about the diagnosis and um, the, yeah, some of those sure. challenges? Yeah. So um, Cassiel's very, very first sort of diagnosis, the first time we ever realized that there was something not, um, you know, not, quite right, was when he failed to uh, develop language along the same, you know, milestones as you would normally see. So he he was uh, nonverbal until he was four. So that was sort of the first thing, was the, was the speech disability or the inability to, um, you know, verbalize uh, like they were expecting. Um, we have three children. Cass was our, was our second son. So we had gone through sort of a typical process with our daughter, who's older, and then sort of kind of vaguely realizing that when he was around a year old that he wasn't sort of experimenting with sounds he didn't he couldn't speak there were no words there but he was very very expressive in other ways he he gestured really enthusiastically his facial expressions were super developed and it was interesting that we actually as a family almost hadn't noticed that he was nonverbal because he could make himself so clearly understood through other ways um so looking back, we, we think that that's, uh, you know, that's actually kind of funny. But uh, we we went to the pediatrician. They had uh, they did some assessments. They did an autism assessment, um, one of many, many autism assessments that he's had. And that came back negative. And um, ultimately, they diagnosed him with childhood apraxia of speech. And that was his first sort of, you know, clinical diagnosis. Uh, we started speech therapy with him. Um, when he was around 18 months old, and he actually used sign language for the first several years of his life. So that was kind of what started us on the path of having, you know, an atypical, atypically developing son. Um, soon after that, uh, the speech uh, therapist felt like there was something muscular, something with his musculature that was contributing to his, um, to the speech disability. She noticed that he had a significant 
uh, drool problem as a toddler and that his um, his muscles were, you know, pretty significantly atonic or underdeveloped. And uh, that led to a, um, a diagnosis of dyspraxia or developmental coordination disorder. So that was sort of the next thing on the list. And he was actually in terms of the, the, um, the DCD, the dyspraxia, very young to be diagnosed with that. That's generally a developmental disorder that's not diagnosed until they're older. Um, so it was kind of difficult at that point to try and have any kind of early intervention therapies done because nothing existed for, for a three-year-old who was dyspraxic. Um, so at that time, they thought that the best thing for us to do was to kind of mix us in with the autistic kids, that it was sort of the closest thing they could get to what his symptoms seemed to be, even though we knew definitively, um, based on multiple tests, that he wasn't autistic. So we accessed a lot of services that were designed for autistic kids. And I mean, a lot of them did help, you know, a lot of the autistic early intervention stuff. Uh, we did, um, you know, group therapies and play groups and support groups and all sorts of things um, through the uh, pediatric neurological group here. And a lot of that stuff actually sort of covered some of his, you know, his social issues and his um, speech delay and things like that. So that's kind of, we, we knew he was dyspraxic. We knew that he had the, the speech disability. And then that was sort of it until, until we hit school age, age five. Then other things started to uh, come, come into play. Um, he uh, had, you know, significant learning disabilities in certain areas um, that, uh, that were a challenge. Um, and they they gave him an education assistant uh, at school. He was put on an IEP. So we had kind of that exper that experience going through public school. Um, over the years, discovered that you know the public school really wasn't able to to help uh, support him in the ways that he needed. And we ended up um, putting him into a specialized school specifically for kids with learning disabilities. And uh, we've been handling his education that way. We're using alternative education now. So he actually now goes to a homeschooling program um, that is run by the government. So it's sort of public school, but it is all distance education, which works for him. He, he has a lot of difficulty focusing in the classroom. He has noise sensitivity. He has um, you know, numerous things that make learning in a classroom setting really difficult for him. So what were, so that was all going on. What were those, what were those difficulties when you guys first kind of got him an IEP and, and what were, what was he having troubles yeah. with? So emotional regulation is certainly an issue for him. Um, it, it, he works really, really hard on it now. Uh, and we're really proud of him for, for being able to self-regulate as well as he can. Um, but that was, those were skills that he had to learn that were very, very difficult for him. So, um, emotional regulation plus, of course, there's that, that Kleinfelter's issue of size, right? Like he was significantly taller than all of his classmates, even at a fairly young age. And um, there was a there was a fear factor with that for other kids and for teachers and stuff that they were concerned that when he did dysregulate, and depending on how, um, how triggered he was, you know, if, if he if he honestly sort of completely lost the ability to manage himself, he, he might kick out or lash out or throw something and they the in the they were very concerned about the safety of other kids. Um, and of course himself in, in those situations. And part of that was 
because of his size. So that, you know, it was really difficult for him. And he really internalized a lot of that. He, he, he was bullied significantly in school, like absolutely just viciously. Um, And he also started to feel like he, you know, he felt that he was a monster. He felt that he sort of had this Jekyll and Hyde kind of situation going on. And he knew that when he lost they, they called it flipping his lid was one of the particular terms that um, we used that's, that's based on this like uh, emotional regulation system. And when it, that he flipped his lid, that he was putting other people at risk. And that was horrible for him. Like that's a lot of emotional <laughs> baggage to put on a, you know, a 10 year old or whatever. Right. So um, yeah, it was really difficult to get through that. And the the emotional consequences of having sort of the undiagnosed Kleinfelters um, and trying to you know integrate with into like you know a typical school setting were really difficult for him and and he's got a lot of trauma from those times. So what was through through a lot of the trauma and through a lot of like the difficulties? What were things that you guys noticed that he was really good at and that he excelled in? Oh my gosh, there there are so like there's so many and this was one thing that actually was quite interesting in order to qualify for the education assistant and the IEP you had to have regular um uh psychological reports done so psych ed reports or neuropsych reports is what generally they're called so every 3 years we had to have one of these new Psych ed reports does, which is sort of a psychologist performs this assessment. It, it takes quite a, like it literally takes an entire day to do and they have the kids do, um, you know, a series of different cognitive exercises. You know, there's, there's everything from, you know, they test memory, they test pattern recognition, they test, uh, you know, they're trying to figure out how a child learns, um, you know, how does the brain work? And these tests would come back, and, and these are what they use to actually diagnose learning disabilities. So they can come back and say, okay, well, his his verbal expression is poor, which, I mean, it's no surprise. He had a, a speech disability. Uh, but his, his not, you know, his, his uh, comprehension is off the charts. So they can actually tell, like, information going in, he was like 97th, 98th percentile, way up there. But information coming out was the challenge. Expressive, um, you know, his expressive language, expressive skills. So everything was going in. They knew that he was, like, in terms of intelligence or IQ, very high. But the challenge was that, you know, something was happening in his brain where things would kind of get jumbled up or he would have really difficulty sort of repeating that back. Um, another thing that that has always been like literally off the charts was pattern recognition for him. He's got such a good, you know, and spatial awareness are absolutely just wild, way better than anything. And they, they, they did a test and the psychologist, when she was going through the report with us, the last one we had done, actually brought the testing because she's like, I want to show you what this kid can do. And she showed us and they're basically like almost like flashcards essentially that they hold up that will have a basic pattern on it. Like let's say a circle on the left and a square on the right and then a squiggle on the bottom left. And they'll, they hold it up. Um, to the testing subject and, you know, for whatever length of time, 10 seconds or something, I'm, I don't remember. And then they put it down again and then they ha- asked the, the, the subject to duplicate the pattern on the, on the test form. So they need to remember where the square was, where the circle was, where the squiggle was. He can replicate those patterns 
after only seeing them for just a matter of seconds, it's like photographic. He, he can look at it for just a split second, no matter how complex the pattern, and replicate it perfectly with like 100% accuracy. And she said, we, we use, like, you know, it starts out very simple with very basic shapes and gets progressively more complicated. And she said, we use the most difficult patterns we have, and he was still you know, scoring at a hundred percent. She said she'd never seen anything like it. And, and knowing him and he, I mean, he, he's, he loves puzzles. He loves thinking things through. He loves riddles. He, he plays games that, you know, that work with your spatial awareness, like Minecraft and Roblox and things like that. Um, and he, it didn't surprise us, but, you know, we were really proud, like, that this was something that he was so incredibly good at, and he could remember these things. His memory is just absolutely off the charts, whether it's for trivia details or, like, literally this pattern recognition stuff. So that, we thought that that was really cool, and we, you know, I think he's, I think he's very proud of that. That, you know, it's, it, I'm smiling over here because that's how I learned how to spell. My, um... <laughs> I did. I did a lot of those testing as well as a kid, and I remember all of that stuff. And I was, I excelled in all that as well. And my dad actually picked up on like my spelling was awful, but he he figured out okay, if he's really good at this spatial awareness, then we're gonna put syllables of words on flashcards yeah. and in different colors within the syllables. And he would hold it up to me for 10 seconds and then say, memorize it, put it down and then have me spell it. And by seeing it as like a picture rather than, you know, spelling out the word. Right. Absolutely. And that's how I learned how to spell. That's how I learned how to do math with flashcards and problems. And and that's that's incredible that you mentioned that. And, you know, I think, yeah, it was it was explained to us in a really interesting way. And I think that this is, it's worth passing this along. So one of the things um, that was uh, incredibly challenging for him when he was, you know, in grade two and three and, and the grades where they sort of are working on, you know, your basic things like spelling is that he was unable to, um, you know, and this is essentially a, you know, a, a, a cognitive disability uh he was not able to cognitively load now that's the that's the, the phrase that the educators were using and the psychologists were using and it was explained to us like this that with our bodies we have muscle memory for, for certain things a task that we've done many many times we don't really have to think about and, and a good example is driving right that many adults after they've had their driver's license for you know a long time we can get in the car and we can operate all of the various you know pieces of the machinery without really thinking hard about it it's almost subconscious we know how the brake pedal and the gas pedal work we know how to turn the steering wheel we know what the rules of the roads are we're not consciously thinking of all of those things but if you try and think back to the first time you ever got into a car if you were taking driver's lessons or or you know if someone was teaching you you did have to consciously think of all those things and it was stressful you know there was the stress of thinking oh my gosh do i you know especially you know brake pedal gas pedal turning checking your mirrors all of those things that you had to consciously think about so they said that there is actually um like a a mental version of that and it's called cognitively loading and cognitively loading is when you have to consciously think about what you are trying to do even if it's something like spell a word or write letters and they said that they watch him when they watch him writing 
he has to think about how to form every single letter. It's not subconscious. So when he was writing his name, it was literally like, okay, Cassiel, C, half circle. A is like a balloon on a stick. Like, you know, S is a snake. And he is literally thinking about how he has to form each letter and trying to think about how you make it and how it goes on the page and how much pressure is on the pencil and all of those various things that most people like if you're writing you're probably not really thinking how do I form a letter but even though he had been you know like he was you know eight nine years old he still needed like an alphabet strip across the top of his desk like to show him how you make the letters because it just he wasn't forming that muscle muscle memory. He wasn't. He had to cognitively load everything. He had to actually think about it. And they said that that's something that they see sometimes um, with kids with various neurological disabilities is that the bodies just take a really long time to learn those things. And it it does happen. It just takes way longer than than your typical child does. So that was kind of an interesting way for us to think about it. That one of his struggles at school was that he had to consciously think about everything that all of the other kids were sort of doing automatically. And that that is exhausting. You know, this, his doctors were saying like, think about it, you know, imagine that every single thing you try to do everything from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, you're having to consciously think about nothing is automatic. You're walking down the stairs and in your mind, you're thinking stair one, stair two, stair three, like nothing is happening quickly, right? And it's exhausting. It's really exhausting. So that put it in perspective for us. It's like the struggle that he had just to sort of navigate the school system. And, and you know, it, it really motivated us to remove as many challenges as we could to make it easier for him to be able to focus and to accomplish a task. Um, if we can take away noise distractions, if we can take away um, you know, the rest of the classroom or stress about assignment deadlines or whatever. The more we can take off his plate, the more he can focus on what he's trying to do. And then the easier it will be to actually develop that muscle memory eventually. So how were his testing skills? Sorry, his which skills? T- testing, like te- like taking, oh, taking well, tests. That, yeah, for sure, terrible. <laughs> I mean, it, it really boiled down to, it was never about whether or not he knew the subject matter. It was, it could be as simple as the kid sitting next to him is tapping his pen on his desk and it was driving him crazy and he couldn't focus and and the stress of knowing that he only had a certain amount of time to do this and that you know we had doctors recommend so many accommodations for him that um that were not that the school system never delivered on um you know that he should have somebody be able to take dictation for him it took us it took us four years for them to approve a laptop that he could use in class because writing was you know he doesn't have very good fine motor control so writing was extremely difficult but typing is something he actually can sort of do automatically so that's easy right we'll give him a laptop but no it ended up being this big bureaucratic just gordian knot that we could not get through um, and even when they finally were able to produce the laptop when he was in grade four and note it had been requested when he was in kindergarten, he didn't get it till grade four. And even then it was, you know, every time something wasn't working on it, they had to give it, it could only go to the school board technician. And that would be a quick matter of weeks before we would get it back. So it was, it was definitely just a hurdle every step of the way. Everything was an obstacle working with the school system for him. So So it was frustrating for all of us. As far as like his learning went, when you're, I know 
I, I roughly know kind of a lot of the things that your son has gone through, especially the bullying aspect. And when, mm-hmm. when you're, when you stand out that much in school, when it comes to having an IEP, needing extra time on tests, using a laptop, these things that make you stand out to other kids, those are reasons for those other kids to then bully you because you stand out in the learning aspect. So how, how did the bullying kind of shape your son? Cause I know that he's old, like how old is he now? Yeah. He's 15 years old now. Um, and he, I mean, he literally has PTSD like that. That is an actual diagnosis that he, he has. So it was, it was very traumatic. Um, it has, it has basically destroyed his self-esteem. Um, even to this day, he, he, has negative self-talk constantly he's constantly just got this voice in his head telling him that he's stupid or he's slow or he's you know that he's not going to measure up in some way um so it's certainly impacted his mental health uh as a as a teenager you know he he does have a depression diagnosis and he takes anti-anxiety and depression medication um it it has been it's it's uh, I mean, it, it makes me so sad as a as a mother. I mean, obviously, we we didn't know that the bullying was happening until the damage had already largely been done. And um, I, I mean, we're so, if we could change anything, uh, that's what it would be. That you know, we would go back and remove him from those incredibly toxic situations because it's it's been formative for him. The person he is now is very largely shaped by the bullying he encountered as a child and it breaks my heart it really does and so this was this bullying was pre-Kleinfelter diagnosis correct yeah this bullying I mean we pulled him out of the public system when he was in grade four or after grade four so it was essentially I think grade four was the real turning point I think that was the year that his peers we're really starting to recognize that some kids are different than others. Um, I think before that, when they were in the more elementary ages, uh, I don't think kids quite have that kind of judgment. Um, you know, that everyone is always just sort of happy to be there and they're all playing with each other and everything's rosy and fine. But I think that once they hit that grade four age and, you know, they're, they're prepubescent and they're starting to look at other kids and uh, you know make those judgment calls of who's my friend who's someone that I you know they, they make those assessments and um, unfortunately for him you know the the the, qual- the qualities of, of him that really stood out were you know that he was incredibly tall so he he stands out in any crowd um, he's he is he needed all of that extra support and he was very clumsy as a child he he didn't have um, particularly good motor control, and uh, that meant things like if he was, if he, I can't even, I've lost count of the number of times that he cut his chin on something or that he hurt himself because he he would trip and fall and not be able to brace his fall, like he can't couldn't get his hands underneath him quick enough. So he was always like hitting his head on desks and and splitting his chin open on things and stuff. Like it just happened all the time. Um, and that, that, again, these things all contribute to making him really stand out in a way that he's getting negative attention from his peers. So with all the, you know, with someone that's listening to this podcast and, and is hearing like all the deep, hard struggles of your son and, and your family and, mm-hmm. and what you guys have gone through, like, 
what continues you guys to stay positive and push forward and keep going? Like what, what gives your son that, that drive to, to not just give up? Oh, it's, I mean, there are so many sweet, sweet things about him. Like he, he, the word that we used to always use to describe him out, well, that we still use, um, even before the diagnosis was tender. We, we used to refer to Cass as a tender kid. He was a tender baby. He's a tender kid. Uh, and we, we use that word in the meaning that he is so soft and sweet and loving and affectionate. And he can, with a facial expression, communicate such a deep range of emotion without needing the words and and I feel like um that that was a sort of a compensation skill he developed really young is that he just has this incredibly sort of angelic almost persona that he uses with with people that he trusts it does take him a while to sort of earn trust um or for someone else to earn trust with him, I should say. But he just has sort of this endless capacity for love uh, that that really sets him aside, we think, from from other kids. And um, I, I kind of think of that sometimes as like the drawback, you know, like he got this incredibly loving heart, but it came with some strings attached, you know, like we, I'm a huge proponent of um, neurodiversity. I think that brains come in all different, you know, configurations and, and sizes and and uh, there is nothing we would change about him we we would not ever want him to be typical even if it meant you know that he that the bullying and the the physical struggles that he has um because the person that he is is just so beautiful um it, everyone notices it that he just he's like an angel and on earth and which is very coincidental considering that he has an angel name his name's angelic uh which maybe was a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy i don't know but he's just the absolutely most tender beautiful loving guy and so you talked about some of the physical challenges and so once you guys once you finally found um you know through the years and years of maybe misdiagnosis or di- other diagnoses, yeah. you finally found Klinefelter syndrome. And can you kind of talk to us about how that felt? To yeah, find, well, finally- it was it, <laughs> it was it was so good, and it's interesting. It was the physical symptoms that eventually gave the pediatrician enough clues to say, "Hey, you know what? I think we need to do." some karyotyping, I think we need to run genetic tests because I think I, I might know what this is. So we had all of these neurological and developmental um, diagnoses, but we didn't have like the one holy grail answer. And I, I mean, I, sometimes I think that there isn't one, you know, I don't think every, you know, I think all kids are unique and I don't think that there is always the one label, but ultimately what happened was we had gone in um, for a checkup with his pediatrician and she measured his height and his weight. And she was looking out, like, I remember this day crystal clear and she was looking at her computer screen and she looked at me and she said, okay, so we know he's tall. He's always been off the charts, but now he's really, really, really off the charts. And she said, have we had the how tall is too tall conversation. And I, and I was, I thought that was such a weird way to put it. I was like, um, no, you, what do you mean that there's a too tall conversation? And she said, okay, so sure he's tall. We know that, but he is now at the point where we think that there must be something 
um, else causing the extreme height, whether it is an issue with the pituitary gland or whether it's a genetic thing, I don't know yet, but we are now in that territory. So because of, he was very tall and very skinny. Um, so at that moment, she's like, the, the very first thing that pops into my mind that I, that is fairly easy to check for is Marfan syndrome. So she, she said, let's, you know, Marfan syndrome, which um, results in, you know, an, a very tall stature and sort of um, unusual proportions to the body, which some of which Kath had. It was a, a test that she could perform right there that was basically a series of measurements, and then she checks it against the chart. Um, so she was performing a Marfan's assessment on him, and, and he was, uh, I think, around 13, almost 14 years old at that point. And in the process of doing the Marfan's assessment, one of the measurements involved was fine. And she discovered the scoliosis. So that was the first sort of physical symptom other than the extreme height. But she's like, hey, you know, wait a second. He's got a scoliosis here. There's a definite curve to his back, which wasn't visible to the naked eye necessarily at that time unless you were really looking for it. But that was sort of, you know, that was the beginning of, of, the, of the big, you know, the grand prize holy grail answer there. Um, so she sent us to have um, a, a scoliosis panel X-ray done and to see how that was, and and that that was sort of on our minds for a while. Scoliosis is very unusual in boys. Um, normally, ninety percent of uh, of scoliosis um, cases are girls. So it, that in itself was very atypical, which kind of raised a lot of question marks. Um, and it's the location of his scoliosis is unusual as well. Most scoliosis is uh, an upper, you know, upper thoracic scoliosis and his in, his in the lumbar. So that was unusual. So there were all kinds of a bunch of, you know, there were all of these things that kind of had the doctors scratching their heads. And one day I got a call from the pediatrician and she said, hey, so I was talking to a colleague who has a patient with Kleinfelter syndrome. And she was describing, um, you know, the, the presentation of Kleinfelter syndrome and uh, just a bell went off in in my mind because I was like that's Kath I have a patient exactly like that and uh, that's when she ordered the genetic karyotyping and that's when we got that confirmation and so of course as soon as she said it I was like okay how do you spell that Kleinfelters and you know I wrote it down and I searched online and boom like it was as though I had a checklist of all of the various things and I know that Kleinfelters itself is almost a spectrum, right? There's, you know, some people have some of the symptoms and not all of them. And, um, but he had like every single one. We had, you know, the, the muscles and the, the, the learning disabilities and this, you know, troubles acquiring speech and everything right down to um, that the lack of testosterone can cause a decrease in bone density, which can lead to scoliosis. So, you know, it, it was the whole, it was the whole thing. He had everything on that list. So, you know, we kind of joke that he's the poster child for, for Kleinfelters, but it was every answer. And then I, then I was like, well, wait a second, this doesn't seem to be that uncommon. If, if they're saying that, you know, you know, anywhere from one in 500 to one in a thousand boys has Kleinfelter syndrome, that's a pretty high number. How come none of these doctors had ever heard of it? You know, he'd even seen a urologist at one point and the urologist didn't, you know, come up with Kleinfelter's diagnosis. So, so it was, it answered questions, but it also raised a few questions. Which, so they, um, yeah. They never did like the urologist or the doctor never did like a physical exam to like examine his testicles. Well, he, he had 
ahead. Like, so, so, um, you know, with Kleinfelders, there can be a delay or, or, you know, complications with the testes descending, which he, you know, which, which he had, and he had been referred to a urologist. And I, I don't remember, he was, pro- I don't remember the exact age, but I would guess that it was somewhere around age 11, um, that they were concerned that his testes hadn't descended yet. And, and the urologist was very casual and blase about it. He was like, oh, well, you know, let's give it another six months. And then, you know, if it, you know, maybe this problem will resolve itself. And, and they did, you know, it did to a certain uh, extent. So we never pursued that further. So I just, I, I, I think about all of the various specialists we have seen over the years, you know, developmental pediatricians and urologists. And, uh, but then, you know, for some reason, Kleinfelters hadn't occurred to any of them um, uh, until, until uh, you know, just basically last year. So yeah, it's, it's a little frustrating as a mom thinking of all of the help that maybe we could have got earlier but you know ultimately we have those answers now and now we know what to look for right like now he's got an endocrinologist and you know they're they're monitoring you know his pancreas and and his hormones and all of the potential complications that can come from Kleinfelter syndrome we're now on alert for those so that that feels good to know what we're watching out for um and to know potentially what things he's going to need to do as an adult, you know, like he he is at some point gonna have to do testosterone injections, and you know your videos on that have always been really helpful because you know he can actually see another person with Kleinfelter syndrome and what they have to do sort of in the day to day maintenance. So um, yeah, we're really glad that uh, Living with XXY has been providing that sort of um, platform that we can actually see. It was just so odd to not be able to get a diagnosis until it was so late. Do you, so it's. I mean, going through the gauntlet of what you've gone through and I've learned there's a lot of families that kind of get the, the, the prenatal diagnoses are different than the boys like your son that are being diagnosed between like, let's say Mm -hmm. six and, and 17, because a lot of the families when they're in your situation, there's lots of complications and they're going through the gauntlet of doctors and people trying to figure things out and they're relating it to autism and they're saying like, oh, it's probably autism mentally or, and then there's physically, there's something different. And so you've gone through this gauntlet of doctors with not one of them like understanding or really having any knowledge about Kleinfelter syndrome. So it's, it's, I can see like the frustration in families yeah. and, 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 and it being, it's not rare. It's just rarely diagnosed. So it's, Exactly. Yeah. And it's, he has so many stereotypical markers of Kleinfelters. I mean, he, he was, um, 13 years old and he was six foot four. Right. And, and literally, so that should have been a sign, right? Like, you know, it it should have triggered something at the pediatrician's office, but it didn't. Um, so, you know, that, that definitely really drives home the, the, the whole point of, of living with XXY is to, you know, is to raise visibility, is to raise understanding and to advocate for, you know, our, our medical professionals should be able to recognize the very obvious symptoms of 
of Kleinfelders. You know, there's no way that a 13 year old who's six foot four with a learning disability and speech delay shouldn't have been diagnosed with Kleinfelders, right? Like that should have been the first thing on the table. And and you know, obviously this is specific to our um, you know to our doctors who who didn't catch it. Um, I actually had a friend. Um, I, I mentioned that uh, we have a friend who has a brother who is an orthopedic surgeon. So they're they're in the states and and not treating him. But my friend was talking about uh, my son. You know, so this was a conversation that they were just having, and he said, "Oh, you know, he couldn't remember the name of the um, the condition." And and she said, "You know, oh, well, he's he's really 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 tall, and he has scoliosis." And the doctor looked. That, you know, the doctor brother said, oh, he has Kleinfelters. Like he knew instantly. And she says, yes, that was it, Kleinfelters. So, so I was kind of like, yeah, gee, I wish our pediatrician had known just on the basis of really, really tall and has scoliosis. But uh, so I guess some, you know, some doctors do and some don't. Unfortunately, we've just, I guess, had bad luck every step along the way. I think it's, I think it's a universal thing. Like a lot of people say, oh, it's Canada or, oh, it's America. Like you guys have the best healthcare, the most understanding for Kleinfelder syndrome and, and the most awareness and all these things. But really like there's select few of doctors that remember it from med school or learning about it, or there's select few of doctors, very few that specialize in it. And yeah. Other than that, like the general, I would say like the general population of doctors and medical staff and all that, like don't understand it or know about it. And, and it's almost, it's backwards in the sense of like, it's up to our community to come out of these shadows because we're hiding in plain sight. It's for us to come out and share our stories and spread awareness and build a community. So our voice gets loud. So then people in the medical field listen to us and and then get intrigued about, oh, this exists. Like, I want to do more research. I want to learn more about this. And maybe they'll dedicate their career to it versus a lot of the stuff like Down syndrome, autism, and all these other things. They learn about it so much in med school that they specialize in it there and they everyone knows about it. And so yes. it's up yeah. to us. Yeah, it's up to us to, like, uh, it's up to families like you that – your son got diagnosed with this at 14, 15, and you're here, you are on a podcast, you know, despite how many struggles and how much stuff your son has went gone through, he's now like an advocate and a voice for, you know, another, there's another family out there that is, has gone through everything that you guys are going through and your story and everything that you're sharing right now, it makes another family realize like, Hey, we're not alone in this because Kleinfelter syndrome is a spectrum. Yeah, and it's it's actually in addition to having received so much support um, from you and living with XXY um, that has helped educate us directly. There's also every time I I go on the the site or you know I, I'm looking at Facebook or something like that, and I I see a message from a family somewhere that says, "Oh, we just got the diagnosis and we were so scared, and now we see this and we feel so much better." That honestly just it you know my heart just grows three sizes every time I see those because I want everyone to know that you know my son is is absolutely incredible. He is beautiful. Yes, he has his his struggles, but they're not going to hold him back. And um, sometimes some things just take a little longer, but he, he's got this incredible future ahead for, you know, ahead of him. And he has pride in, 
in his Kleinfelter's diagnosis, and he is proud of who he is. And um, I shared with you something from uh, last year, which was a science test that he that they'd been given at school that had the very simple multiple choice question of how many chromosomes do, does a human have, you know, and one of the multiple choice answers was 46, which was, of course, the question that they were looking for, the answer that they were looking for. But they're wrong, aren't they? Because my son has 47. And he actually wrote that. And he so he circled 46. And then he wrote beside it, I had 47. And he put a little smiley face because he knew he was being cheeky. He knew that the question was badly worded, you know, that and that he could kind of rub in a little to the teacher that, well, this is this is the right answer that you're looking for, but it's the wrong answer because there are people who have more than 46 and there's people who have less than 46 and that doesn't make us any less human. So um, I was very proud of him and he, he really enjoys that label. You know, he enjoys being unique or, or, you know, in his class, certainly he enjoys things like being really, really tall and, and uh, he, he's very proud of it. So um that's what I choose to focus on. And, and I love sharing those things with people because then I feel like, you know, we're not ashamed of this. We're not ashamed of his diagnosis or, you know, when, when, when we look at it and we're like, well, it's a, you know, it's a chromosome aneuploidy. It's the sex chromosome. I'm not going to shy away from talking about those things because they've made him into just this absolutely incredible kid that we're so proud of and that he's starting to become proud of as well. It's taken a long time. You know, his self-esteem took a really big hit when he was younger. And it's only now that he's finding that some of those things that he used to be mocked for are actually things that set him apart and make him really special now. That's such a unique perspective. And I'm so glad you shared that because that photo that you sent us and we posted it on social media, I I think to this day, it's the most shared, most liked, most just like communicated photo where all the other guys that are in their high school years or middle age or later on in life, they all reshared it because they were like, this is exactly like the, the smiley face is what makes it, you know, it's, right. you know, he was, yeah, he's proud of it. And, and I'm so happy. I I was so happy for a number of reasons. I was happy because it meant that he understood what, you know, because we weren't really sure what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about hormones and we're talking about chromosomes. And and I wasn't entirely sure if at age 14 he was super understanding all of it. But then he just showed me with that one boom, with that one little smiley face and writing 47 beside 46. He showed me that he 100% understood, you know, the, the, the physiology of what we were talking about. And he was proud of it. So, yeah, it, I, I, that's one of my favorite photos ever. I, you know, that brings up, that brings up a really good conversation. Um, the fact of like, you know, a lot of families really worry about how do I tell my son and, and granted you guys have gone through a lot of the challenges. And then when you got the diagnosis, it was very like relieving to be like, Oh, okay. This, a lot of this makes total sense. So in Mm -hmm. that, in that aspect, like how was it telling him, you know, Oh, we found this, you know, this diagnosis. Did he, like how, how was his, how did he receive that? And like, obviously the 40 writing 47 XXY with a smiley yeah. face was obviously his confirmation, but how was it for you guys? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So in a, it, he received that information in a very typical Cassiel fashion, which was to say, okay, don't stop talking to me. You know, as, as we're sitting there trying to have this wholesome conversation about how some people are different. He was like, okay, everybody shush. 
I am going to go to my room. I'm going to sit down at my computer, and I want you to send me three links. <laughs> no, no more than that. Three links about Kleinfelter. And he wanted to learn about it in his own space and in his own way. And um, for him, you know, he he finds conversation like it's again it's all part of that um you know the way that his brain works where he he really just wants to be able to focus on something without a lot of outside noise and in his own time and that's exactly what he did we sent him I think the wikipedia link and you know I don't even remember I I was trying to find things that um you know because some of the information out there is very old as you know and you know that's not how we we approach Kleinfelters today so you know I didn't want anything that was going to talk about um you know virilization therapy or anything like that that was kind of scary and sounded like something out of the 60s because it was so I looked for some you know some curated sources that were actually Kleinfelters organizations where it was like a self-advocacy based website like yours and um, so that these were people who have Kleinfelters who were talking about Kleinfelters and not just some medical report somewhere. So we, we found three sources like that and we sent them to him and, and that was it. And, and we kind of never mentioned it again. And it wasn't until I saw that picture that I realized, oh, he actually read those things. He actually understood it. He just needed to process it in his own way. Um, we're very fortunate, I think, as a family in that um, our daughter is uh, is queer and we've always been able to talk about things like, you know, not everybody is the same. Some things are different. And we've done pride events in the past. And, and he knew that being intersex was something that could happen. So to find out then that he had what is essentially an intersex condition, you know, in terms of chromosomes, didn't scare him. Um, in any way, because he knew that his sister was also different. And now he had something that made him different and special as well. So, uh, yeah, he, he did the reading and he came to his, you know, we were, we were very open. We're like, if you have any questions, please ask us. If we don't know, we'll ask the doctors. Like, you know, we, we kind of wanted to talk to him about it, but he didn't want to talk to us about it. And that was okay. You know, he, he wanted to do it his way. We know he understands it. And uh, we just sort of take it one thing at a time, you know, when we, when we have to go to the endocrinologist or he has to have a bone scan or whatever, um, we just sort of handle it one, one, one hurdle at a time with him. So talking about your son, like what are, you know, you mentioned Minecraft and him being 15. So what are some of these great, you know, we talked about his great, um, like empathy and, and all these things. So what, what, he views himself as just a normal fifth, like in his own way, a normal 15 year old boy. Like what are some of the things that you guys enjoy doing as a family um, that, you know, that kind of, he enjoys doing himself that independence, mm-hmm. you know, stuff, stuff like that. Uh, yeah. There, there are um, a lot of things that we have to sort of be mindful of when we're dealing with him and uh, the number one thing is that he he has very low stamina um he's not currently on testosterone um therapy we do expect that to be started uh within the next year or two but right now um he's not taking testosterone and there is actually a physiological consequence to that in that there are these two other therapies 
hormones, which are essentially trigger hormones for testosterone that his body produces a lot of, uh, in order to, you know, that they're trying to get his body to produce more testosterone and his body's not, but he has an overabundance of these other two hormones. And one of the side effects of that is, um, a, a very low, uh, stamina. He's exhausted all the time. Is so, that, you know, he the... can only walk. Sorry. Uh, what are they called? Yeah. It's follicles, to... follicle stimulating hormone and yeah, F- FSH hormone? and yes, exactly. FSH and LH. So uh, boys with Kleinfelter syndrome who aren't producing, you know, sufficient, client, sufficient testosterone, the body is putting out FSH and LH to try and trigger the body into making more testosterone. And it doesn't, but as those, those are, those two hormones are, have a known effect of, of, causing you know exhaustion so um that is unfortunately what what young what teenage boys with Kleinfelters have to deal with that until they actually get the testosterone in their systems up these other two hormones kind of get free reign and uh it, it makes it incredibly different so difficult for them to you know be be focused and awake all the time in addition to just the general challenge of being a teenager and wanting to sleep all the time um yeah so what I'm just just to let our view our listeners know like you're the reason why you guys haven't started testosterone you have something specific right yeah in his case um his endocrinologist took a look at his hormone levels and said okay so he's he's started to produce testosterone and and puberty has begun um and this isn't it's not uncommon um there's actually uh, when you're talking about Kleinfelter syndrome, it's it's almost as if it kind of starts and then stops puberty. It it it, it slows down the testosterone production, drops off. But like they're they're most um, for boys with Kleinfelters, they tend to be at you know produce the peak of their natural hormones when they're quite when they're younger, when they're when they're 13 around that age, and then it drops off, and then they have to have testosterone therapy to kind of make up that. Um, shortfall so he's right on that cusp where his body is producing some testosterone uh so it's not critical that he has the therapy now but more importantly in his case uh we are waiting for a a quite a major surgery they they do need to fuse his spine so he has severe kyphoscoliosis um now ironically you know when we got that diagnosis it was only a very mild um scoliosis but over the course of one year it went quite dramatically from a curve that was less than 20 degrees to several curves that, you know, some of which are in the 80 degree range. So quite, quite significant deformity of the spine. Um, and the orthopedic surgeons have uh, decided that it needs to be fused. Um, unfortunately, because of COVID and uh, because of shortage of medical staff, we we've been waiting so we've been waiting now over a year well almost a year it was may of last year so we're waiting almost a year um and we still don't even have that surgery scheduled yet because there's such a long backlog of surgeries that had to be canceled uh in british columbia because of covid so they're going to be playing catch up unfortunately i think for some time um and we've been told that that it's likely he won't be eligible for that surgery till next year at the earliest Dang. Yeah, and I guess because that is such a um, that is a that's a surgery that's going to require a hospitalization and it's going to require a lot of medication and 
instrumentation, it's, it's, it's quite a complicated surgery. So none of the other doctors, they're all, and they're all working in tandem, which is at least great. You know, the orthopedic surgeon is in contact with the pediatrician and the endocrinologist, and they're all working together as a team, which is good. The endocrinologist doesn't sort of want to add that sort of extra complication to the plate. She doesn't want to start testosterone until he's had the surgery, just because it then becomes another thing that they need to be mindful of once they get him into the hospital and they're worrying about things like, you know, his pain medication and his, his post-surgical routine and stuff like that. It's, it's just sort of an added, just an added thing that they would have to, um, you know, accommodate. Uh, and because he doesn't need it right now, you know, it's not hurting him to not get that extra testosterone right now, with the exception that he's exhausted all the time, of course. Um, so it, it seemed in everybody's best interest just to hold off and wait. Uh, that was, of course, when we were assuming that he would have the surgery within a year, but it's been a year now and, and still no. So we'll just have to, uh, we actually have an appointment with the endocrinologist, I think in like a week or something. Um, we'll see if she wants to reassess that based on the, the delay with the surgery. But that was where we were at last time we discussed it. So with everything that you guys have experienced and the positives and the struggles and everything like that, what is a message that you would give, you know, to the listeners, the newly diagnosed mothers or families that are kind of sitting in your shoes? Like, how do you guys, you know, continue to strive for excellence, move forward? And, and you know, what would you tell families that are like in utero or people that are worried about all the, you know, possible negative implications of Kleinfelder yeah. syndrome? Um, I think I would tell them that, you know, so many people, and you said this yourself, that it's not that Kleinfelter's, it's rare, it's that it's rarely diagnosed. There are so many men living their lives out there with Kleinfelter syndrome who don't even know that they have it. And, and I think that that's really important to keep in mind that this is something that affects our son's life in a number of really dramatic ways. But we also think that, you know, he's sort of, an, I think, an outlier in a lot of cases that some of, you know, his disabilities are significant, but I don't think that's the norm with Kleinfelters. I think that it, it is a bit of a spectrum and you never know. You don't know which of those boxes are going to be checked on their Kleinfelters cards when is, you know, particularly if they're in utero and that everything that he was delayed on, he did eventually catch up. Like this kid worked so hard on his emotional regulation and he's worked so hard at speech therapy and he is a perfectly normally communicative teenage boy now like you would never know that he had a, a speech disability he's got all of these various little tricks that he uses to compensate it he uses a thesaurus a lot um if there's ever a word that he sort of can't get out he just will go and find a synonym for it so he's got all of these little tricks that he uses um in order to sound more like his typical peers and and it's it's wonderful it's great like it's I think of it, you know, he's a very, very creative problem solver, um, absolutely loves to solve problems. And I think that that comes out of a fact that he's sort of always sort of kind of trying to figure, solve them for himself, you know, that whatever area he's struggling with, he tries to find another way to approach the problem. So, uh, yeah, I would want to tell people like you, there's a very good chance that this is not ever going to slow your son down. Um, and also, I think that we're sort of never, I think that we're never given more than we can handle in a lot of ways. 
Um, I think that as a parent, I've had to kind of become a little bit of a medical expert and a little bit of an advocate, particularly as far as the school system was concerned. But it was a challenge that I was glad to face. I was glad to face that head on because, you know, I love my son so much. I love him as as much as my other children. You know, it's a weird thing to have to you know, specifically mentioned, but we don't think of him as being different than his siblings. He, he is just one of our kids. And I, you know, I was willing to, you know, fight the school board and fight the school administration. And then also to recognize when, you know what, this is wasting energy, we should go to a private system instead. Um, and to figure all of those things out, like, he, you know, you're just going to take it as it comes. You're going to take it one thing at a time. And don't, don't sit there thinking, what if? You know, there's no point. It's wasted energy. You don't need to sit there and go, well, what if it's going to be like Down syndrome or what if it's going to be like autism? Well, you know what? He's still going to be your son and you're still going to love him and you're going to tackle each problem individually. Like he's got a speech disability. Okay, so you go to speech therapy or, you know, you have to go to flashcards like your dad did or you have or whatever the issue is. You will tackle those problems one thing at a time. Um, Yeah. And don't be don't be scared. I, I mean, I love the fact that you said that your son is a creative problem solver. Like I've, I've problem solved my whole life. And I think that that's a huge ad, like, a tr- like that's a huge positive attribute to our lives is like, we can use that in so many job environments to, to be able to live on our own, take care of ourselves, support ourselves. The, the fact that we have these other challenges that a lot of people might not have. And we have to find the workarounds that work for us. And I like the fact that you said he uses a thesaurus. Like that's actually a great idea because you can, (laughs) you can, you can see what you want to say and then it'll give you a word that matches what that means. And that goes with that, like whole expressive language kind of, it's hard to, it's really easy for us to understand, but for us to communicate what we understand back to people, um, unless it's like a hands-on visual thing, it's very hard to articulate what is in our brain to make, have it make sense to others. And I've, I've figured the workaround for me was using analogies because they're visual. So I can speak in analogies to people for them to understand. So that, that's like, that's so, and, it's so unique, even though you say like your son might have more of the challenges with Kleinfelder syndrome, like be he's been given like the whole deck of cards when it comes to the <laughs> diagnosis. But there's even though he's given the deck and I've I have part of the deck, but not, you know, I don't have the scoliosis and things that he has. We still have such a common he's 15. I'm 36 and we have a common way of like how we've solved problems, how we learn like and, and these aspects that he's figured out at 15 and you've talked about them in this podcast. So other families and other guys that are listening will be like, Whoa, like that's me too, or that's my son. And if they don't have those skills to teach them kid, their kids that, or the the adults don't have those skills yet, they can be like, Oh my God, like I'm, I should try that. Like that's, that's a great workaround. So. Yeah. You know what? And there's something else that just popped into my head that I, that I think, was probably one of the most pieces of valuable pieces of advice that had been given to me. And I want to pass it along. Um, Shortly after uh, things had gotten really difficult with Cass, um, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who has MS 
and uh, she's in a wheelchair, and she was talking, you know, it, it uh, you know, MS is not comparable to Kleinfelter's in many ways at all, but, but she said, look, I want to, I want to kind of intervene for a second here, because I can see that you are a parent of a disabled child, and then that causes you a lot of stress, and you're sitting here telling me about all of these ways in which you're trying to support your son and all of these struggles that he has, uh, you know, adapting to a world that is designed for, for non, you know, for able to people, for non-disabled people. And she said, please, please, please do not overlook your, your son's own agency that, that you may be trying to solve problems for him, but you're going to come at it from an able perspective. Whereas just ask him, you know, he's, he's 13 years old, I think is how old he was at the time. He is old enough to think of his own solutions or to at least help you when you're trying to think of solutions. And that was something I really needed to hear at that point, because I was really sort of running around going, how can I make every, how can I make this world perfect for my, my son? And that's not how it works. You know, that's not, it's not teaching him um, how to solve those problems on its own. It's not teaching, you know, it's, it's teaching him that, you know, that I'm always sort of going to bail him out of whatever challenge. And it, it was bad for me to reinforce that kind of line of thinking that he is always going to be the number one um, deciding factor in, in what he wants to do. So, and I'll give you, I'll give you an, a very specific example of what I'm talking about. Very shortly after that conversation where she had said, you know, just ask him ask him how he wants to solve a problem. Um, he, he was in his bedroom and he was getting dressed and he knocked his piggy bank off the shelf and the piggy bank fell on the floor and it shattered. And I mean, hundreds of coins were in this piggy bank and it caused, there was, you know, it was very loud. It was very noisy. There was, you know, porcelain everywhere. And, um, he was desperately trying to pick up the coins. And I mean, it's hard enough for me to try and pick up a coin off of a flat surface, right? When you, if you put a bunch of coins on a table and then try to pick them up, unless you have like long nails, it can be really hard, right? It's easier for us to take, you know, scoop them to the edge. Uh, but these were on the floor and he, you know, because he has this, you know, the motor dexterity thing, it, this was essentially an impossible task. This was like Sisyphus and the boulder rolling it up the hill. Like there's no way he could pick up all the coins off of the floor. And it overstimulated him so bad that he just started screaming and he went nonverbal. Um, so I, of course, ran into his bedroom and he is half dressed on the floor, fetal position, just completely completely dysregulated and there's glass and coins everywhere and I, I was trying to think you know I'm like okay this is obviously really bad <laughs> and when I when I approached him he did you know he lashed out at me he kicked he kicked me uh, he was having a lot of trouble sort of trying to regulate himself but we finally got him calmed down um, you know so to the point and it took quite a while calmed down so he could talk and he could breathe and uh, I started going around to pick up the coins and then I, you know, I remembered my friends, you know, I remembered her advice and I, I was like, okay, wait a second. Before I solve this problem for him, I turned to him and I said, wow, okay, so we've got these coins all over the floor and they're really hard to pick up. Um, is there anything that you think that we could do? Like, how do you want me to support you with this mess? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, do you have a magnet? And I was like, 
Yes. And that's genius. Like I didn't think of that. And, and I went and got the magnet and he picked up all the coins and he put them in the bowl. Like, and then we found out that you can go on Amazon or wherever and buy like extendable sticks with magnets on the end that are designed for people with disabilities to help them pick things up. Like it was, it was genius. Like it never occurred to me to use a magnet. And right away he was like, well, if I had a stick with a magnet on it, I could pick all of these up. No problem. And ultimately that's what he did. So I have to give him the credit. I have to give him the agency. Like even if what he thinks of isn't a perfect solution, I need him to know that he tried to solve this problem and that he was, you know, that when he has successes, they're his 100%. Um, I think that that's really important for us. We, you know, I'm an able-bodied person. I don't have, um, you know, I am neurotypical. I'm not going to be able to think of things in the same way that he does. And I don't understand the struggles the same way that he does. So he has to be the first person to weigh in on any particular challenge. That's, Um, and I can, all I can do is support him. That's brilliant because it gives him the ability to try something that he's never done. And then once he does it, it gives him the confidence because he did it and he, he believed in himself. Exactly. And then yes. even though it might've not been the most efficient way of doing it, he figured it out, he accomplished it. And then the next time something like that happens, he might be able to be like, okay, I did it this way last time. How can I improve and do it differently this time? And it, gets your mind working in the sense of, you know, the non-neurotypical child is able to think about things completely differently and, and having the parents, having parents that are open and accepting of like, okay, yeah, you're going to do it this way. And the parents being like, okay, well, it's going to take him twice as long, blah, 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 blah. Like we should intervene and tell him, but by not doing that, you're, you're giving him the confidence to believe in himself that he's capable of doing things that he probably never thought he was capable of doing. Exactly. And I mean, that's, that is hugely important. Um, I, I can't put myself in his shoes Um, and I don't want to be in his shoes. I want him to, to grow up and have a job and have a family and to have a life or, you know, whatever his goals are, I want him to feel like he can, uh, you know, achieve them. And uh, those goals probably aren't always going to be, living with me, having me do everything for him. Right. Like, you know, yeah, I'm his, I'm his parent, but my goal is to give him the tools so he can go out and be, you know, to live his own life. And we think of so many of the, um, the adaptations that we provide to him, we think of them so many, so frequently as tools, you know, all of the various, uh, you know, the zones of regulation or like whatever particular thing that people have, the psychologists have developed to help kids learn and regulate and everything like that you know we we think of those as tools so we're giving him all of these tools at at school and you know in in these organizations that we're part of why wouldn't we try to do that at home as well so instead of just sort of well I'm your mother so I'll just fix all of your problems for you that's that's not sustainable over the course of his entire life I'm not always going to be there so I want to give him as much confidence and success as I can now um, so that he feels empowered and can do it for himself later. And, and then there's, then it, of course, just strictly there's that, that dis, you know, the dissonance between me as an able-bodied person and him as a disabled person um, that I don't always understand. And I'm always going to approach every problem, no matter how good my intentions are, I'm always going to promote, pr- 
approach every problem as a neurotypical able person, and that's not what he is. So my solutions are not always going to work for him. Yeah, and you're, and uh, that was a, that was important for me to hear someone say to me, and it was important for me to carry out. You know, absolutely. And I appreciate, so, yeah. I appreciate you putting that perspective out there because it. At the end of the day, your son's 15. You want him to become a productive member of society and you want yeah. him to be able to be independent. And I think that that's something that a lot of the families where their boys are living at home in their mid 20s or, you know, they the parents strive for their son to learn this independence, which they might be a little bit behind on. And Mm -hmm. the parents want them to have that independence, but the boys also want that independence on their own and they don't want to learn it from their parents. And, but then some of them don't have the confidence to do it on their own. So there's this constant battle of independence and striving to be a productive member of society because the parents ultimately like your parents aren't always going to be there for you. So you have to learn these things in order to be able to go like your friend with MS to be able to survive and, and, be happy and enjoy life um, regardless of the challenges and regardless if this world is not built for people like that. So that's a, she gave you a a great, uh, she just gave you as a, as a mom and as a friend, she gave you a, a wonderful piece of advice and, she really, really did, you know, and she's like, it was one of those, I'm going to stop you right there moments, <laughs> you know, and, and I was, you know, I really listened to her words and I thought, oh my gosh, you're right. Like I'm, I'm going too far. Um, and I, I need to give him the opportunities to, to really, you know, to own his own situations and to have agency. So that was, like I said, probably the most valuable piece of advice that someone could give me. Um, and, uh, Thus, I, I pass it on to you. <laughs> and at at the end of the day, you know, this life is worth living. Having a Klinefelter syndrome diagnosis isn't a death sentence. And despite how many struggles one may have or, or one that, you know, doesn't have very many struggles um, or their only struggle might be the male infertility aspect, um, you know, this life is totally worth living. And and uh, your son and your experience share, you know, shows that to the community and and. Uh, we just really appreciate having you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. I, I'm um, really, it's an honor to be here. I'm so grateful to you and the rest of the XXY community for all of the support and education. And uh, yeah, just just thank you for existing. It's I feel like we all need to talk more about it and to, to have it so that people are just more familiar with it and, and know that it's, uh, it, it, it's just a way to be different and it doesn't, yeah, it's not a death sentence. Like you said. Well, thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Ryan. Take care.